The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Thomas Morley. Tom was inspired by his father's service in Vietnam to join the military and to attend West Point. Tom embraced the military and academic challenges, but chafed at the restrictive rules of the academy. Tom needed to know the basics in order for him to understand what informed risks he could take as a leader. And Tom's time at West Point and as an aviation officer gave him that experience. Tom left the Army during a period of personal loss at home and disillusionment with his experiences overseas. Tom found his way and his purpose when he opened himself up to a new perspective and a new adventure with humanitarian aid. This is his story. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods, and hit each other with sticks. I joined the military, and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're with Tom Morley. How are you doing today, Tom? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you doing? Excellent. So first question, why West Point? Uh, the long and short of it is my dad had done some time in the military. Uh, dad uh, dad was a volunteered before he could get drafted during Vietnam. Um, he got pulled into something called MACV SOG, um, which... Not wasn't quite a precursor to the Green Berets, but you know, Dad didn't do the full Q course. He did the shake and bake course. And if you ever saw the Deer Hunter, that was kind of my dad. He came from a small town in northern Minnesota, and despite you know the the toughness of fighting in that war, you know, Dad always had a lot of affection for it and affection for the people that he was with. And you know, and candidly was um, you know I wanted to fly, and there was a point there where in high school, you know, all the kids kind of start you know, going into those advanced classes and making those jumps. And, and I wasn't making all those jumps, you know, and you kind of start looking around and you're like, okay, so this kid who says he wants to be an astronaut has a real chance of it. And I'm not sure about my chances. Um, and I knew that flying in the army uh, was something that was a lot more attainable. 
And I also understood that if I didn't get to fly, I could still have a, a decent, happy career. Whereas in the Air Force, if you don't get to fly, you're going to be a second class citizen and kicking rocks the whole time. So, I mean, that's what kind of appealed to it for me is I, I wanted to fly. I wanted to do something that I thought would make my, my dad proud. Um, and, and then candidly, we were a middle class family. And, you know, it was one of those things where college was something that was big and scary and, and very, very expensive. You know, my next best op- option was driving a, uh, of uh, a, a Ford, uh, a Ford Escort to UCF for four years and getting my degree that way. So shaving my head and going to West Point sounded like a much better and much more fun option, to be honest. Talk me through the preparation. I think in high school, right, you know, you're going through and you're trying to take the right classes. Um, you know, I, I was, I, I wasn't doing the cool sports. I was doing cross country. Um, <laughs> it's, it's all a bunch of gangly nerdy kids who, uh, who, who can suffer and who, you know, tried out the other sports and the best thing that they were at was the warm up. So, um, I did cross country. I did crew. Um, I was in a junior ROTC for air force, which, you know, I look back of, and I'm a little sheepish about it, but it was a great experience. And, um, the, the officers, uh, that, uh, that I got to meet there, you know, who were, you know, like guys like C-130 pilots, I thought that was pretty cool. And um, the, the military prepared me from that, from that side, too. But it's like everything else is trying to bring up your grades, trying to do well in the SATs, trying to show that you can walk and chew gum at the same time. But, but fundamentally, it didn't work out for me. I, I remember calling up the admissions department and asking for a status on my packet. I don't know if you ever did that, but I was, you know, you know always following it up. And they're like, Oh no, everything looks great here. You know, you're looking smart. There's no reason we shouldn't see you this fall, Scott. And I'm like, my name's Thomas. And that's how I discovered there was a Scott Morley in Orlando, Florida. And (laughs) (laughs) true story. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and basically I I hear paperwork shuffling and they go, well, Tom, you know, we'll be a hold of you. Maybe there's some other chances. And I ended up getting the association of graduate scholarship for like a prep school. And there were maybe about two dozen of us. And we ended up in different places. Uh, there was there was uh, the one down New Mexico military. There was Marion in Alabama. And both of those places looked like prisons to me, um, which is saying something. Um, but instead, I ended up at Valley Forge uh, Military Junior College. And I did that for a year and, you know, retook classes, tried to get smarter. And there were about 11 of us there. It was like Sean Morrow, Jordan Sembauer, Brian Collins. Um, I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed for the ones I didn't remember, but, uh, you know, we came out of there being very, very close friends. And, um, and again, it was one of those things where, you know, out of the, out of that group, you know, nine of them got told right away, yes, you're going to come in. And, and Brian Collins and I had to retake a calculus class and we weren't notified until well after spring break that we had gotten in. And it was just a massive, massive sigh of relief. It was, uh, <laughs> It was, it was one of the things we were pretty happy because I, I was sitting there going, what the hell am I going to do after this otherwise? And, uh, you know, there's always ROTC and it's, it's a fine way to do it. But I, at that point, you know, I desperately, desperately wanted to go to West Point. What impact did those two close calls have on you when you did get into West Point? Um, you, I've never thought of that. Um, that's a good question. I think what it did was it, it taught me that you know, you're going to fall, fall on your face and you're going to stumble. And sometimes it's going to be because just the universe and, and things wildly outside of your, your control. But it also taught me to kind of own the failures quickly. Um, and I think that that was something that later on in life um, was usually more of a blessing than a curse, but being able to quickly understand what I did to foul something up and, 
and try to at least acknowledge it and try to fix it um, was was something that was good. But I'll tell you what, it it really, you know, I, I just learned to run scared, Joe. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you, you can run fast, but if you're running scared, you're running faster. And 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 whenever I was behind, I, I had to learn to run scared, um, which wasn't, like I said, wasn't always a good thing. But um, but that's what I got out of it. So you, you finish your year at Valley Forge and you walk into West Point. How did Bear, Beast Barracks go? Yeah, um, it wasn't easy. But by that point, having gone to, you know, a military junior college where I literally had a snake put down my shirt. Um you know, it, it was just like, oh, all you're going to do is yell at me and make me do push-ups. Uh, I can handle this. You know, it, it, that that part didn't bother me. Um, you know, the initial, you know, regimen and, and getting your head shaved again and, and sh- you know, building up a new pair of low quarter shoes with black black shoe polish. That part didn't bother me. Um, so, I mean, the, the Beast Barracks thing, if anything, I thought was kind of fun and it was interesting. Um, you know, there were cre- crummy days like I imagine everybody had, but for the most part, it was exactly what I expected it to be. And I didn't worry that I wouldn't cut it. I was like, I, I was like, I'm, I, this part's the easy part. You know, the, the harder part's going to be the academics, you know, and that was what I was dreading. You know, how'd that go when you, uh, transitioned to the academic year and you, uh, came into DDS yeah. and some higher level math. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I felt what a lot of people feel where you're looking at these things and, you know, you read it and, People are kind of, you know, nodding in the classroom, you know, like about a third of the people maybe are nodding in the classroom and, you know, two thirds are like puzzling through it. And, and, and then there was probably us bottom third folks who are just like, what just did I, what did I just get told? You know, um, you're, you're getting thrown off the deep end for some of this stuff. And I, I felt like I, in a way I was kind of ticked off because I was like, man, I had to retake a year, year, you know, basically a second senior year of high school and all this other stuff to prep. And now they're not even asking me those questions. And I was kind of pissed off about it, <laughs> you know, and the fact that they're like very proud in DDS, they're like, oh yeah, this is something that nobody else does and isn't very useful, but we just do it to, 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 you know, separate the wheat from the chaff. And you're just like, oh, thanks guys. Um, you know, so it was, but it, but it taught you to kind of rely on, on, on classmates. You know, I, I, I you know, my, I was in D1. So you know, you've talked to Adrian Talapan and Kyle Barden, who were in that same company with me. Um, and, you know, you, I remember Adrian was just a, a nice guy. You know, it was one of those things. He was somebody who could go through and say, Adrian, walk me through this. And he'd be like, oh, this is easy. Tuck, 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 you know. Um, so it was good. It, and, and for the most part, I found people who were willing to take the time to to engage with you and, and get you to their level. It, it, while there was a level of competition, I think people kind of understood that there was a importance and nobility in, in getting people to your level on stuff. Right. You know, and, 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 and with the understanding that you're going to have other moments that you're going to be stronger and you're not going to leave them twisting in the wind. And that's, that's the cool thing that I really enjoyed about West Point. When did you start leaning in and, and finding the things that you liked most at school? Um, you know, when that first year, when you're selecting your majors, um, and, and I was going through and I knew I wanted to fly. And so I was like, all right, well, I want to do languages and Arabic really sounds interesting to me. And when they were like, well, you can do dual language. I was like, I will tack on French because I'm, you know how people used to get frustrated with the Spanish for Spanish speakers. Well, my first language was French. And, uh, like I straight up spoke like Prefe Le Pew until I was about eight or nine years old. Um, 
So it was one of these things where I, I fully know and I will own the fact that I did that to bring up my GPA so I could fly helicopters. Um, but I got pulled into French club and, and that was fun. You'd, you'd go up, you know, on weekends to, to like places like Quebec city. Um, it allowed me to spend a semester at the French military Academy, which with uh, Sarah Galvin, who is one of my lifelong friends because of that experience, you know, and, and, you know, I was the guy who always volunteered for things. If it wasn't at West point, you know, like they were looking for people for, for, for going to Sandhurst at the, at the, at the British military Academy. And I was like, send me. And I remember, you know, going into some of these things and, and like in the room, you got a bunch of people with stars on their collars. And I never had one of those, you know, (laughs) I I was never an academic all-star, but I just kind of kept showing up. And then like when they worked their way through all the alternates, there was Tom Morley, you know, and I got to do those things. And I, I loved, I loved going to different places. I loved getting to represent West Point and get represent, you know, my country, you know, uh, all the good and bad of it. And, um, and that was the kind of stuff that really just, I loved, you know, I did Sandhurst, not because I, I was like a super hua guy and people were always surprised when I t- told them I had no interest in going infantry just because I was like, this is interesting and it's fun. And, and I also was like, you know, there's no harm in be, be, being good at this stuff or enjoying it in a, in a, in an unironic way, you know, that, that it's, it's, it's fun to run. It's fun to, to scale walls. It's fun to be on teams, you know, and, and that stuff I just always adored. Um, and, and because of the closeness that you build in those things. And the, those, those were the things that I enjoyed. You know, my brother was there, uh, starting my, 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 um, I guess it would have been my, my junior year, you know, so we had the family thing. My, my, my friend, Brian Collins, we would go on weekends. We would, Go on Anthony Wayne optional leave. Have you ever heard of this? Um, no. A wall. A wall. Yeah, that's the <laughs> word. Um, so Anthony Wayne optional leave. We would go with Brian Collins and Jordan and Matt Kuski, and we, you know, we would meet his dad at the turnaround. You know, we'd walk down there confidently in our cities, like when we were yucks, and we just like spend the day hanging out in Montclair, New Jersey. You know, with being away from it all just for a day. You know, and that's, I guess those were the things I was good at. You know, some of them were even authorized um, and some unauthorized, which I, which is probably why I ended up a firsty private. So. <laughs> so what were some of the bad? I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. What were some of your bad experiences? Oh, bad experience? Uh, being a firsty private. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I got busted with a bottle of alcohol in my room. And, uh, you know, it was it was when Mike Russell and I were, were roommates and he's uh, he's back there teaching history. Um, I doubt any of the students will listen to this, but he and I both got busted a firsty private. And that was not a lot of fun. Um, you know, just the, the the you know, by the time you enter your fourth year and you're doing a Sammy, it's just this a lot of the stuff just felt old, you know, um, but, but I remember even just kind of going through and just the whole, you killed your pl- platoon dramatics. I, um, I never bought into that stuff, Joe. You know, I, I was like, okay, you know, we, you want, we want to be better. We want to improve. We want to own our failures. But like building everything into like a catastrophic loss of life, I just, I, it always felt really insincere to me. And, and that part of it just kind of drove me nuts. I remember Dave Utlout one time, you know, giving me a stern talking to when he was first captain because I was wearing sandals instead of closed toes shoes. And I was like, does this stuff really matter? Does it matter? <laughs> you know, and, and part of it was, it was the rules, you know, and it's part of the thing is about, I, you know, why I, I ended up racking up, you know, about a hundred punishment tours by the time it was all said and done. But, you know, that's, that, them's the breaks, you know? Um, yeah, I was, I was a, I was an average 
average cadet, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. I, I probably held me back. Not probably. It certainly did. It's a shame that sometimes um, people mistake discipline of following all of the rules when not all the rules are necessary. Right. Versus discipline on the things more important. Matter. Right. Right. You know, I, I thought that running running 10 miles with, 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 with a rifle, being able to do that was, in my mind's eye, I always thought that was pretty important, you know? Um, you know, but that being said is, you know, there's, 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 there's gray areas too, you know, where you can go through and say, breaking this rule is not a big deal here, but it's a big deal there. But look, it's, it's like, you know, when we talk about discipline and, and I, I don't know if you've ever run into this, you know, where parents, you know, talk to about the, you know, their, their teenage kid going, oh, they need to go to the military for discipline. I'm like, you know, the kid who's in drama who is there every day after class learning their lines day in and day out. And the kid who's, who's wrestling and is going through and doing stadiums going up and down the stairs every day, that's discipline too. You know, shaving your head and walking around in a square. I mean, if somebody's making you do that, is that discipline, right? Is, 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 is that really improving yourself? And I don't know that I, I don't think that the answer is yes. It all goes down to what you're doing when no one's watching. Yeah. Yeah. And you know that, what? I think that, that for some of the stuff I did was largely harmless. So how did you make aviation? By the skin of my teeth. Um, you know, I went through, did the physical, and um, I was totally that person. I, I think you're in Star's interview, she talks about, you know, feeling through the, the thing and, and trying to figure out if it felt like, you know, a, a propeller and two wings. Um, but I had done a CTLT at Bragg, and, you know, people got pushed into Blackhawks and Apaches, and I got pushed into um uh 117 calf air calf um i think they still had a troop of humvees that they had up armored or something um but it was for 58 deltas and i was like this is awesome and i got to hang out and just you know being around a bunch of warrant officers who are just all piss and vinegar and swagger but also competent and courageous and really you know again, disciplined in terms of understanding their manual and, and, and emergency procedures and how to get a hellfire off the rail. Like that really, really appealed to me, you know, so on branch night, I'm feeling in that envelope and, and I had a massive, massive exhale of relief when I opened it up with the aviation branch. And, um, you know, and that, that I don't know how close I was to the bottom, bottom of, of that Joe, but I, I, I made it by the skin of my teeth and I'm happy I did. Well, what, what post did they give you? So flight school is funny, right? So you go and you don't find out what your post is until you finish your first year. So, you know, I go in there and because I know I'm not smart, I go through and I say, I'm not going to wait and, and basically get slotted in and basically not start, start flying until like January. I was like, I'm going to give up all my leave. I'm going to take a week off and I'm going to go like right into flight school. And so I got in there with the kids who kind of chose to, which was like, uh, basically the folks who were top in our class, uh, were, were, were in my class and me. And, you know, you go there and I, I'm going through the first year, you during your initial entry rotary wing, we were flying on nine 11. I was with Jess Rice. Um, when they said that the aircraft, the airplanes crashed into the towers and they grounded all the helicopters, like right then and there, um, they grounded all the helicopters. And, um, we, uh, we got back in and we proceeded to spend two weeks, you know, on the ground looking around at each other going, when are they going to let us fly again? And the instructor's being like, damned if I know. And, you know, you're doing your initial entry ring and then you're doing your, your instrument rating and then you do nights. Um, you know, and nights is tough. 
it was tough for me anyway, where you're just learning to fly with night vision goggles. And then you go through and you actually do the second half of the officer basic course. And that's when you branch and, and you branch aircraft and location. And like right away, the folks in the top are like, you know, Apaches, Chinooks, you know, and they're like going dun, 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 dun. And they're filling them all out and they get to the bottom of it. And it's nothing but Kiowas. And like people around me are kicking rocks and I am just ecstatic because I think everybody else is a sucker, you know, Um, but I'm happy, you know, and, and they go through and I'm like, great. And they're like, where are you going? I'm like, Korea, because I studied Arabic. And the Iraq war is about to kick off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're just like, <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I remember calling up some divisions and being like, hey, I'm an Arabic speaker. I'd like to, I'd like to come to you guys. And, uh, and I remember getting a call from the branch guy, you know, within a week being, knock it off. You're going to Korea. Yes, sir. <laughs> so I show up in Korea in January or February. I want to say it was, after February, because it was right after the Patriots won that first Super Bowl. So it would have been, I guess, February. And I'm in Korea. And, you know, I go to my first squadron gunnery. And we're, you know, after having, quote unquote, missed Afghanistan, you know, we're watching the invasion of Iraq on TV. And, you know, me and this guy named Sam Puentes, who was a pilot, who was a warrant officer, you know, and had been a former Ranger Regiment guy, we're like, oh, man, we missed the wars, you know, and we really thought we did. You know, I wish I could reach through time and slap the hell out of myself. But but we thought we had missed our wars and missed our chances, you know, but I spent Korea, you know, watching everything on TV and thinking I was just going to be a rimp and a slick sleeve for the rest of my life. That wasn't the case, was it? No, funny how things work out, right? Um, so I ended up extending in Korea, uh, which was good. I got to be a pilot in command and being a senior lieutenant in Korea um, is like being a fraternity president. Uh and, and all the good and bad ways that that means. I, I described my experience of you know, my one and a half years in Korea. I said it was like a, it was like Peter Pan if all the lost boys were alcoholics. You know, it was, <laughs> you know, I look back on it and I was like, where were the grownups? <laughs> like, where, where were the grownups to stop us? Um, but, but, you know, we, we got a lot of good flying in and I got back to the States and I went to the 101st Airborne Division, like right as they were coming back from Iraq. And, you know, I got to, I got the 217 Cav there. Um, Ian was there. Andy Dial was there. Um, I, I got back and I went to, to Jordan Sembauer's wedding. And uh, I remember coming back and they gave me a platoon again, which was a pleasant surprise. And like a month and a half later, I get called into the squadron commander's office and he goes, Tom, we need a volunteer to go to 18th or to go to 18th Airborne Corps. They're deploying to Baghdad. And I remember just there's a pregnant silence. And I'm like, sir, if you're looking for a volunteer, how come I'm the only one in this office? You know, my mouth sometimes got me in trouble, Joe. Um, just cause it, <laughs> it, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but it's just like, you know, let's just call it what it is. If you're telling me I'm going, just tell me I'm going, man. And so that was that. I, 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 got, I, I packed up. I, I, I arrived back in the States like in, in July and I was gone again in January. I think it was right before the Super Bowl. No, it was right after the Super Bowl again this time. Um, and I remember the night before going to watch Million Dollar Baby with my mom and dad. They uh, they drove me to the uh, to the air base, and there wasn't a big divisional send off. It was just thirty of us poor scrubs who were just individual taskers, you know, all kind of from different units getting pulled together. And my mom, who who's who's French, you know, um, goes back, gives me a hug, and says, "Come back with your shielder on it," you know. So 
know, she, she's got a little bit of a flair for the dramatic and I appreciated that in the moment, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and my dad gave me a hug and he kissed me on the cheek. He's like, take care of your guys. They'll take care of you. And that was that. And I got on a plane and went to Baghdad and flew a desk for a year. What was that like where you, you were on the sidelines in Korea looking at Afghanistan and looking at Iraq and they send you to Iraq and you're on the sidelines in Iraq? Yeah. So this was right after the first elections. Um, you know, we didn't get mortared every day, Joe, but it certainly felt like it in the green zone. Um, you know, but like you say, it's not it's not some glorious combat. It's just sitting around waiting to get your foot blown off, you know, and, and putting putting sandbags on top of your chew. And um, and that was weird, you know, and I, I ended up getting bounced out of 18th Airborne Cork and then getting sent to work with MNS TCI with, uh, with David Petraeus when he was there. Um, they were calling it Min Sticky at the time. Um, and that was just the transition, you know, stuff for the Iraqi army and, and the Iraqi police force. And that was, you know, we, we'd take press around and we do that kind of stuff, but I got to bounce around and do a lot. And it was, it was really interesting. You know, there was guard units that were kind of plussing up that particular mission. And I got to meet some really cool and interesting people from the guard, you know, who, you know, we used to look down our nose on, but, you know, it turns out that these folks are smart and resourceful and come from a varied amount of backgrounds and are worthy of respect, you know, and it was, so that part of it was interesting, but yeah, I mean, there was a, a few times where you're like, you know, man, I, I, I did all this. And when people ask me what I did during the war, and I'm going to say, I sent emails, you know, or, or worse yet, I was in the propaganda office, you know, which it sometimes felt like. And, um, you know, so that was, that was tough. Um, but, you know, given the choice between sitting on the sidelines in Korea and, and sitting on the sidelines in Baghdad, I'm, I'm still glad I would have gotten that chance. And if it would have stopped there, I don't know that I would have been satisfied, but I don't think I would have been ashamed, you know? So I, I just remember when I was uh, in Iraq and I would see some of the MIT teams come forward or some of the other teams that were spits. So they were, they were training the military. Uh, they were embedded with the military or they're training the, the police and you'd right. have captains and majors and senior NCOs. And they felt slighted because although their role was critical, it wasn't their primary MOS. Right. And, like, and, and so you, again, just like you said, it's like, man, I'm, I'm a trained aviator. Um, I got a sword and a gun and I want to go stab yeah. someone from a helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to make me an air cavalry officer by God. And, um, <laughs> and here I am, you know, changing happy to glad in a press release. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't the most ennobling things. Um, but, but, you know, I, I kind of also understood that it had its place and, you know, I still had to do some, I still got some interesting stuff where they'd be like, all right, you know, we haven't heard from, you know, Battalion X in, in, in two months, you know, and they'd send me out for message to Garcia stuff occasionally because, because I could get around um, and people didn't worry about me too much. So I, I got to do a lot of that stuff where it's, you know, going out to, to Fort Talafer or Talafar or however you want to pronounce it, you know, and, and, and basically going through and saying, all right, you know, what are your numbers? How are you guys doing? Are you getting what you need? And then finding out that their internet black box has been crapped out for the last five weeks because when they gave access to it, to the, um, to the Iraqi officers, they were downloading so much smut that they basically got, that they used up all the, all the, all the bandwidth. So, you know, it was, it was an education and it was interesting, but it was also, you know, more than once you're kind of sitting there going, is this going to even work? You know, and that, that was not always a very good feeling even early on like that. And by the time I finished that year in Baghdad, you know, we, we went from, you know, people in body armor and helmets, like when you, when you left your little chew and you were walking around and 
you did that stuff um, to to basically soft covers and people walking around and, and colonels chewing your, your butt out for not saluting them and being like, hey, man, I, I thought we were in a war zone. And there is line of sight between where we are here next to the no drinking while armed sign next to the pool and the other side of the river. And, and you know, guys going through, you know, even though you look them dead in the eyes and say, good morning, sir, to at least acknowledge the fact that they're an officer and you're giving them the, the, the courtesy they deserve and they've earned. You know, where's my salute? Oh, okay, that was fast. You know, it only took a year for the garrison to come here. And that was, uh, that was interesting. And, you know, the, the thing is, is at the end of that, I, I went back to my unit who at that point had deployed to Iraq. And they were like, all right, Tom, uh, when you go back, you can be the rear detachment commander. And I think they were a little surprised when I told them not just no, but hell no. You know, it, I was like, well, isn't there anything for me to go there? And they're like, you want to stay? And I said, yes, I want to stay. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to go, I want to fly. And they said, well, you know, there's an S4 slot done, you know, great. When can I start? And, you know, so I literally would rather get shot at than deal with other people's wives. So, you know, I, 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 I did that and, 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 you know, finished out my time in, in Baghdad and, and went and joined up with 217 Cav and was a flying S4. And, um, and I got what I asked for. It was it was what I wanted, and it was it was it was it was a great mission. You know, you get people from point A to point B in one piece. You know, and um, it, it was a good feeling. You know, I, I, I you know, you, it wasn't saving lives in a glorious way. It was it was getting people from one point to another in one piece, and that was immensely satisfying. It, in the most boring way possible, if you were lucky, and I really loved that. It was it was it was everything that I had hoped it would be. And, and, and everything that I had trained for. And um, I'm forever grateful that I got. Talk me through coming back from that, that extended per, uh, deployment. I mean, it was, it was tough because I ended up spending just under 20 months. Um, so I know the guys who did the strikers and got the extensions, they were like 18 months. Um, but I came back, I was pretty thin, Joe. Um, I was probably around 140 pounds. And when I was at West Point, I was around 165, 175. I'm not going to tell you where I'm at now. Um, but it was pretty stressful. Um, and and con- candidly, you know, disillusion is a strong word, but I, I remember also just kind of getting pulled into different things where when I was there, I, I started getting, you know, because our, our squadron was given terrain, which is highly unusual. And we were given a, cur- a, a, a company of infantry and a company of Blackhawks. So we were basically organized like a Vietnam era air cavalry squadron, you know, because good ideas don't go away, Joe. You know, it's, it's, um, it was really cool, but we were given terrain. So, you know, my boss goes through and goes, well, we've got money, Tom. Maybe you should go build the, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Vogler Memorial School. And, you know, I thought we could do something more interesting and maybe a bit more long lasting. So we started visiting clinics with, uh, with our doc, which was Lieutenant Colonel Smalley, one of the best officers I ever worked with. And basically, you know, started ordering equipment to, to help refit some of these small clinics in rural rural Iraq that were on the Kurdish Arab lines. Um, I got into drilling for freshwater wells. And that was kind of my moment of, of there's, there's a better way to do this because rather than just doing forever cordon and knocks, you know, by getting freshwater wells into these locations, the shepherds there stopped needing to take a hundred bucks to put a bomb under my car, you know, you know, and I, I, I remember being on a mission, you know, I, you may, my moment of kind of like, what the hell are we doing here? And I, I don't think we're going to win anymore. And, and I hope it doesn't come across as anti-American, but I just, I just didn't understand what we were doing in the sense of the fighting. It was like we did a cordon and knock and 
while the Blackhawk was going in and out, it was puking out these flares. It was in a small, in a small town just west of, of Kirkuk. And it just lit the entire fields on fire from all the flares. And just all these people just were just losing everything. And it was just this massive fire in the night. And I just remember a line of tractors of people getting, getting into it to go to the base to demand money, you know. And it was just all to go through and do basically a snatch and grab. And I don't even remember if they got the, the, the two guys they wanted to, you know. So when I got back, you know, I was, I was at that point, I kind of knew I was done, Joe. You know, I, I was, I was pretty tired, you know, and, um, you know, I was given an opportunity to go to the military intelligence course and do that. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I can learn something and maybe my perspective will be something that might be, might have a place there. And, um, but yeah, coming back from Iraq after that long period of time, I was, I was stretched pretty thin. I remember doing the Marine Corps marathon like two months or a month after I got back, it would have been in October, I guess. So a month, but I just had bruises along the bottoms of my feet because I just didn't have any fat on me. You know, it was, uh, yeah, it was tough. It's always uh, interesting to hear how your experiences in, in, in that kind of an environment impacts people because um, it, it affects us all differently and it shapes us all differently. Yeah. And it's so dependent on the events that happen while you're forward because it's all heightened. Yeah. Uh, Everything's on 11. Yeah. So what did you do next? Where you think um, maybe the military thing's not the way for me, but what's the next route for you? Yeah. Um, you know, I went to the military intelligence course and it was, it was a good, it was a good course. Um, it was interesting. You know, I was around folks who, who did think differently and that was kind of cool. Um, I had a brush with the defense intelligence agency where I, I, I did a couple interviews and then they said I was too eager. Um, and uh, they didn't think I was a good fit. And I look back and that's a massively dodged bullet. I'm glad I didn't get sucked into. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I ended up, uh, I ended up linking up with a girl I had met in Nashville. You know, I, you know, to, I think, I think you had made a joke about, um, you know, you're, you're at the age as a, as a captain where if you're not married and you're not a womanizer, people are going to assume you're gay. And, and I was like, well, that's, it's time to get married, you know? Um, so, I mean, I, I rushed into a marriage, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I finished up my time, uh, at the, at the intelligence course. And at the end of it, they're like, well, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And also at that time I discovered my dad was dying of esophageal cancer. So I said, how fat, how close can you get me to Orlando, Florida? And they said, good news. We can put you in Fort Jackson. It's a trade off post. And I ended up getting a, 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 you know, a basic training company command. And, and it was one of those things where, um, it was good. It was interesting, but like, that is not what you do if you need somebody who needs more time off you don't put them in a basic training unit. Like, cause you're working six or seven days a week and you're working crazy hours. And, you know, when I could, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go through, I'd clear it with my, my, uh, my battalion commander, who I still keep in touch and is one of the finest people I ever worked with. A guy named Joe Krebs. Um, and I'd just jump in my car and I'd drive down and, and visit my dad, you know, and, and kind of see him just slowly kind of getting worse along the way. And, and, you know, and it was part of it was, I was like, you know, I don't really want to do this stuff anymore and I'm getting tired. And when I had, uh, you know, just over a year left, you know, I was talking, talking to the, the branch guy and was asking about what happens next. And he says, well, Tom, it'll probably be a MIT team either in Afghanistan or Iraq. And at that point I had over seven years. So I was going to, I was through my ad. So for aviation and knowing what I knew from, from working with Minsticky, I was like, you know what? thanks, but no thanks. You'll see my paperwork next week. And it was a guy named Jay Wright, who I actually had known in Korea. 
So the fact that he was like, this is the way it is, you know, he, he wasn't giving me a buddy deal and, and he and I got along just fine. I was like, this is, this is as good as it gets. And that's how I knew I was kind of done with uniform. And I remember my dad being a little bit pissed off at me because he was like, you know, you, you got a good thing going, you know, you can keep getting promoted, you can have a good career and you're, you're, you're walking out too soon. Um, but I did. And, um, and I ended up uh, going to grad school and ended up going to University of Michigan. So I understand the, the decision to transition out. Why grad school? Why get an MBA? Because I had no idea what else I was going to do. Um, it was, it was in a way, I kind of viewed it as a two-year slow roll in that moment um, to, to be able to go through and say, all right, well, let me figure out, let me see what else is out there. Um, you know, because the whole like going to Lucas Group thing and, um, you know, being a JPO somewhere, which is good for a lot of folks, um, didn't appeal to me. And I think if I'm if I'm honest about it, Joe, I also kind of thought that, you know, going going to school would let me kind of try to put some energy into my marriage, which was failing. Um, it was, you know, my last six months in the service, I, I started, you know, the, the nicely tightly compartmentalized PTSD that I had managed up until that point was starting to show cracks. And I was like, OK, well, if I go to school and it's a little, a little stress, then, you know, it'll kind of go away on its own. I'm going to be fine. Um, and and then. You know, Michigan's also just a really good school. You know, it was the best school I could get into. It's a, it's a good state school. And, you know, I figured it would give me a chance to, to, to pivot into something new because I didn't want to just do, you know, what I call old soldier jobs. You know, I didn't want to I don't want to be a security guy somewhere. You know, um, I, I wanted to do something truly different and interesting. And I thought that tooling up with an MBA would allow me to, to make choices as opposed to having choices happen to me. That was my plan anyway. So you get out of Michigan with an MBA. Yeah. What was your, uh, your first job? I, I worked at Target. Um, but you know, n- not to gloss over, but like between my first and second year of my MBA, I ended up spending three weeks in Battle Creek, Michigan, uh, or excuse me, two weeks in Battle Creek, Michigan without my shoelaces. Um, you know, I kind of had a nervous breakdown. Uh, my dad died that summer and you know, when, and that was actually a summer where I did an internship at Target, uh, in, in girls toys. And um, kind of having my what the hell am I doing here moment. Um, but, you know, much to my surprise, when I graduated, you know, I was looking around for different work. I knew I wanted to go back to Minnesota and I ended up uh, I ended up uh, getting picked up for the Target Canada project. So they were going to expand into Canada and it was going to be this whole thing. And they saw that I was a French speaker. So they were going to put me on the Quebec stuff. And, you know, I, I finished up graduation. I packed up my stuff. And, you know, my, my, my first wife, Charlie and I went and kind of looked at each other. She was going to law school near there in Minneapolis. And, and basically we separated in that moment. And so I, I showed up for, for target Canada. Um, you know, I don't think I, I think I, I was, I was feeling scattered when I showed up there. It was one of those things where I was like, man, I was supposed to, to go to grad school and, and get my stuff together. And now here I feel like more scattered than I did two years ago. And it was, uh, it was a scary experience, but I, I jumped into the Target Canada thing. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was a great opportunity, but but that's not how it worked out. It was uh, it was uh, it was a tough experience. Um, you know, the, the old expression of you can't go home again, right? And um, you know, I, I I went back to Minnesota, which is a place that I had spent you know the first part of my childhood. And originally, I was like, I'm going to go there. You know, my first wife and I are going to settle down. We're going to get 2.5 kids in a minivan and this is how it's going to work. So like right away, that part wasn't, wasn't happening. And, 
you know, and I, I showed up and the work culture there was very cliquish. I, I joke around about working for, for, for Target was, was tough because I, I, I said, it's like mean girls. It was, it was very much like you, you had the, you know, the Heathers and, 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 and the cool kids and, uh, and, and showing up there in my early thirties, right away, you had folks who were like, well, I've been working for Target since I was 16 years old, you know, and, and anybody who shows up after them is, is, uh, is a newbie. And, you know, I really struggled there. And, you know, at, at the end of it, as I was, I think I was juggling just a lot of personal stuff. I was juggling a lot of, you know, professionally just trying to adapt. And, you know, I knew it wasn't going to work out by about the, the seventh or eighth month mark where I was like, oh yeah, this, 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 at this point I was like, this isn't a nosedive and I, and I don't know how to pull it out. And, you know, just over a year into it, you know, I quit before they could fire me. I, I, I was, I, I was going through and I, I realized that I, I wasn't doing anything that was bringing, bringing anything to the company. And I think they, to a certain extent, because I was a veteran or for whatever reasons, I think they felt obligated that they weren't just going to fire me right away. But I was already, you know, on the, the, the improvement plans and all that other happy stuff. And, um, and basically, yeah, I quit before they could fire me. Um, that, uh, basically like at the, the 15 month mark, I guess, but I'm, I'm lucky. I landed on my feet pretty quickly thereafter. So talk me through that. I mean, the loss of your father, mm -hmm. um, your marriage is falling apart. You're still trying to, you're tr still trying to put the pieces back together from, uh, your experiences in Iraq. Yeah. What turned it around? I think time helps. Um, but I'll tell you what, in those moments, you know, I, I, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I joke around. I said, the reason I grew out a beard was because I really couldn't stand looking at myself in the mirror in the mornings, you know, to, to, to shave, you know, it was just one of those things where I, I, I felt like the biggest loser, Joe, you know, it, it, where, where you're going through and saying, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm all potential, but nobody, nobody wants somebody who's full of potential in their thirties. Right. You know, that's, that's when your potential is supposed to start turning into stuff. Right. And, um, you know, I, I really felt like I was falling short. I felt like, felt like I was, you know, somehow less than because I wasn't able to process the grief of my father's loss, you know, of, of my marriage falling apart of, you know, of being, of being a person in combat who got to walk out with, with zero scratches on them. When, yeah. So, I mean, I, I walk out of combat with zero scratches and I'm, I'm, you know, thinking about the fact that we used to fly over Fob Bernstein when I was there. And I'm like, and I remember David Bernstein, just like how smart he was, how capable he was. And I'm like, how the hell is the universe fair when Dave Bernstein is dead and I'm walking around, you know, and it was just a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt, you know, and, and these other kinds of things that are, that you really can't turn off at night. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was, it was just a really dark time. And, and it, and it's not like one of these things where it's like, okay. And, you know, I, I, you know, that stretch of my life lasted a good two, two and a half years, you know, and it, and it did not go away. And it was, it was waiting for me every morning, you know, and, you know, there's the point where you say, all right, I'm not going to kill myself. But there's also the whole thing of like, that doesn't mean you don't want to, right? You know, you, you go through and say that there's, um, you know, you make a commitment to your family, you make a commitment to the people you love that you're, that you're going to, that you're going to endure, but that certainly doesn't make it any easier. And, um, I don't know if I answered your question, Joe. I, uh, I, I just, all I did was just keep moving when I think, when I really didn't know what else to do, I just kept moving. I think sometimes you hear, um, the quote, I don't, I'll never stop loving you, but I don't want to like yeah. you right now. Yeah, and we never think about that in terms of ourselves. 
Oh yeah. No, definitely. You love yourself enough that you're never going to do something that would hurt yourself intentionally. But there are days yeah. you don't want to look in that mirror. And I think that was a great quote about growing out the beard because you didn't want to see yourself in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Now my wife likes it, but, uh, <laughs> and I like it too, but it's, <laughs> uh, you know, in that moment, I, I, I just hated looking at myself in the mirror. And that's absolutely true. Yeah. When did you find a passion, find a direction? When did you start looking at yourself in the mirror? So, you know, part of it was I, um, I, I got into that last year target and just like, you know, the wheels are kind of coming off on everything and out of the clear blue nowhere, um, a girl named Sabrina, uh, reached out to me. So Sabrina was a friend of mine from, from high school. And then when I was at West Point, she was my date for the formals. Um, and I always liked her, but it was also one of those things too, where, you know, she was smart, she wanted to do all these things. And I also, you know, but the whole idea of, of, of following me around, I knew it wasn't anything that she had any interest in. So I didn't pursue her in any way. Um, when I was in Iraq, we wrote to each other literally every day, you know, and when I volunteered for that second tour, you know, things kind of fell apart. You know, when you, you, you don't get to go through and say that you love somebody and then say, oh, by the way, I'm signing up for a second combat tour. You know, that's, that's, that's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on on that one. Um, but, you know, I, I got done with, I, I, I basically bounced out of that target job, you know, at the end. And she had been going through Minneapolis for a work conference and, you know, we, we caught up, we had, you know, we had dinner and yes, yeah, so, so we caught up, we had dinner. Um, and, uh, you know, when she's, when, you know, somebody who you haven't seen in a long, long time. And at that point she and I hadn't spoken for close to five years. Um, and she's like, how are you doing? And I'm like, well, you kind of pause and you're like, everything is on fire, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm in the middle of it and I kind of don't know what to do. And, um, and it felt good to kind of be honest with somebody about that. And, and we got to talking and, you know, and I said, you know, if there's anything out in, out in DC or you'd ever think about, you know, having somebody like me in your life, I was like, I've got nothing holding me back here. And I think she was a little bit surprised by it, but I, I was, I kind of was at the point where I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to drop all my cards on the table because I got nothing to lose. And I had always had feelings for her and I, I cared deeply about her. And about a week later, she calls me up and goes, okay, so how would this work? And a month later, I picked up and I moved to D.C. Before I could unpack, she got a job in Rome and we moved to Italy. And I think, you know, kind of going through and being around somebody who still cares about you or, you know, even when you, you know you're a mess, you know, is it makes you think about the possibility of maybe you're not a mess. Maybe you are redeemed. Maybe you are worthy of love, you know. And um, I mean, she saved my life. I'm, I don't know what would have happened on the other side of that, if I'm honest. So what did you do in Rome? I spent close to a year of being a professional dog walker of only walking my dog. Um, but I was looking for work. Um, I had a, at that point, I had also gone through and because I didn't have to worry about top secret clearances and all that other nonsense, I went through and got my French passport. And so that way I could work in the European Union. And, you know, after, you know, shoving my, my resume into whoever's hands would think about looking at it, I finally ended up getting a chance to work for one of the UN agencies in Rome called the World Food Program. And initially they were going through and saying, oh, we want people with retail experience. But the thing about the UN is like a lot of these big organizations is they use words, but they don't know what they mean. And so they were talking about retail, but really what they were talking about was 
figuring out, you know, a way of getting cash into refugees' hands so they could spend money in stores instead of just giving them a bag of rice or, or, or a bag of flour. So I was like, yeah, I've got retail experience. And they hired me because of the time in Target. Um, and had I not had that experience in Target, I don't think I would have gotten this job. And, um, and that's, that's what unlocked that door. And I got to be in this big building of folks who called themselves humanitarians. And, you know, some of it, you know, some of the, the, the stories about the entitled UN bureaucrat are absolutely true, Joe. But there's a lot of true believers. It's like the military. You know, you've got these folks who, you know, who are there for duty on our country, you know, who are there to, to, to try to save the world, who are there for for because they believe everybody deserves basic, basic dignity and a, and, a, and a meal, you know, and and I felt inspired again. I felt uh, I felt like I had a purpose again. And I'm lucky I I'm lucky I ended up there. And, um, you know, initially it was I, I was writing reports and doing that stuff. And then before I knew it, uh, they went through and they're like, uh, hey, uh, you know, Iraq is Iraq is in trouble. They've evacuated the country office out of Baghdad and sent them up to um, Erbil. How fast can you pack your bags? And before I knew it, I was back in Iraq. Two questions. First one. Mm-hmm. Were you ready for that? Had, had you healed enough before you went there a second time? Um, I mean, I guess so. Um, I, I think I was mentally ready. And, you know, that being said is, you know, this time I, I flew in on a Turkish Airlines flight and I took a taxi from the airport, you know. So, I mean, it's, you know, things change a little bit. It's, it's, you're not, you're not putting on your, 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 your body armor and getting into the rhino. Um, but that being said is, you know, on the second day there is, you know, that you start hearing the, the, the 500 pound bombs dropping on, you know, some of the dash guys as they're trying to come up, you know, south of the city. And you're like, oh, OK, this is this is real. And and I think I was I was ready for it. But again, it was it was a forward deployed job of doing rather necessary but block and tackle parts of this job. I was trying to find vendors that we could buy food from to give to refugees while places like Mosul and and um, and Talafar and these different towns were just and cities were just collapsing, you know, and so we were driving around. And I remember on, on one thing is we were going up to the Turkish border to basically trying to pull supplies across the border and uh, to figure out what was taking so long for some of these laboratory results to get cleared. And, you know, the convoy I was lost got what I was on just got lost bigger than shit. And I wasn't trying to be like the army guy of, I know where I'm going and what's going on, but I did have a map on me. I had a time and no one else had a map, you know, and I could follow along and, and, and figure out what was going on. And at one point, you know, the team stops and I'm like, you know, I'm looking up and I'm like, there's a lake over there. And you know, the older driver who was a, an older Arab guy who's Jordanian, who's must've been in his fifties named Sammy. And he goes, yeah. So, and I was like, there's only one lake here. And that's where the most dam is. And as of two days ago, that was taken over by ISIS. So right now we're in mortar range. So I think we should get back in the cars, you know, because <laughs> we're in our big white classic, you know, UN vehicles with the big UN painted on the side, you know. And while we're driving around, you know, you just see these trucks full of, 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 of refugees um, basically escaping out of cities. And it was all the Yadizis, you know, like 20 people in a tiny Toyota truck getting out. And being eye level with these folks um, was different than flying around in the air. And, and that being said, a massive, a massive refugee wave of, of people, you know, running for their lives. Um, that was that was really sobering. Um, but I'll tell you what, Joe, it didn't 
it didn't it didn't necessarily scare me or anything else but i remember just kind of like okay well you said you wanted to do this kind of stuff because you thought because you thought it mattered you know so here you are so what are you going to do about it you know and again it's it's nothing it's nothing heroic it's just you're forward deployed and i'm going around with my blue baseball cap on trying to register people so that way we can do business with them so that way we can buy food and give them to refugees and that was that was that experience and I, I, I love that I got a chance to do it. And, you know, I got back. Sabrina and I got married in the Seychelles, um, which I highly recommend if you're ever considering getting remarried. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, or renewing vows, whatever. Um, I think but, my wife, you know, we went through. <laughs> <laughs> She's willing to renew the vows and she'll, she'll let you come along this time. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, uh, I dropped. Yeah, I got you back. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I got done, you know, we got married in the Seychelles and, um, I got back to, I got back to, to Rome and a few months later, uh, Ebola kicked off. And again, it was one of those pack your bags, Tom, you know, you're going to go and, uh, you're going to go to Liberia. And, uh, that was a really neat experience. And when I got to Liberia, lo and behold, the 101st airborne division is there. And that was really cool to kind of see the the backside of, you know, you know, uh, the American muscle power that we have with our military being able to extend to humanitarian missions like that was that was so amazing. Um, and, you know, oh, by the way, we're we're in a country where people, you know, people are dying, you know, w w at an alarming rate from a disease that makes you bleed out of your face. You know, that was like that was scary, you know. Dash to a certain extent was as like okay, okay, well they're over there and I'm over here and I'm doing my job. But like Ebola was like you know you don't know you know you don't know what's going to happen and 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 if you get sick it's it's going to happen real fast you know and um, but it was it was again it was it was a great education it was a great experience and 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 you know being in this country also which which was just coming out of a civil war less than a decade earlier and. And just kind of seeing, you know, like that level of poverty, it was, I thought it was worse than Iraq. And, you know, and on top of it, these folks are fighting a disease and we're doing everything to fight the disease. But in the back of your mind, they're looking around going, these are some pretty skinny kids, you know, these are some pretty small people, you know, and that was, that was sobering too. But I, I'm, I'm thankful that I got those opportunities and I got the chance to be part of some really, really important things that the UN was doing that I, I think, that I think saved lives. And that was, that was incredible. Is it? easier to focus on the mission and less on the fear when when the the mission is taking care of those people i think so but i think it's always been like that for me you know i i, I didn't if i sat there and 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 you know even as a young young officer said look you know you're getting the, these you know this this convoy of 88 mics from point a to point b and there's 20 trucks and if you don't do your job right somebody's going to get killed like i think i would have just started hyperventilating but, but if it was just a matter of, all right, we're going to follow this checklist. We're going to do these things. We're going to move through the problem. And at the end of it, because we go through and we, we navigate the checklist and we adapt when things change, everything's going to be okay. Um, I, I think I've always thrived in that. I think I've always, I've always done well with that. And, um, and, and the UN, which to be honest, doesn't have a lot of checklists, you know, they they reward the fact that if your brain works that way and is making its own checklists, you know, you could you could move through it. And I, I I think I think that did make it easier. And that was one of the skill sets that you pick up from being in uniform. 
is is when when things kind of start getting scary is you're like okay go back to you know what needs to be done what order does it need to be done you know what what is the, what is going to get you out of this and get other people out of this you know alive and in one piece and i always thought if you could break it down into the steps you need to take you know you'd you'd be okay and it just it how do you eat the elephant joe you you eat it one one bite at a time right now the change in the mission and the the change of the tools yeah did they suit does it suit you better at this point in my life definitely um you know when being in iraq and when we first started getting this money for reconstruction you know i i i, I use the metaphor that the, th- the thing about being a soldier was you can never put down your rifle right especially when you were outside the wire you you always had that sucker on you and probably in your hand and like anything else in life is doing any doing a bunch of stuff one-handed you're just not going to be very good at it you know you can be very good at doing it one-handed but you're never going to be quite as good as somebody who gets to use both hands and the thing about humanitarian work and and it's less about hearts and minds as it is by saving lives and changing lives, you know, and, and, and being able to put my full effort behind it um, was really, really cool, you know, and, and, and that's something that I enjoy. You know, even when I left at WFP and I was working in the Azraq refugee camp, you know, like I tell people that I would, you know, that, that I was working there. And, and I remember having a guy who was a lieutenant colonel. He's like, he's like, what kind of a security detachment did you have? And I'm like, I didn't have anything. I just walked through the middle of the camp you know, with my little vest on that said, you know, ACF, and I had a UNICEF patch on it at the time. And you go around, you talk to people, you ask them, you ask them what's going on, and they're going to, and they're going to let you know when they're not happy. But, but by being able to not have this figurative and literal armor on you, you know, you, you, you get to be part of the solution as opposed to just being this, this scary thing, or this thing that's, that's, that's looking down on them, you know, I, I think I think you're 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 a bit more you're a bit more in the group, you know. You, you get to sit down with the shakes in the circle, and because you got a beard and it's got a lot of salt and pepper in it, you know they they want to listen to you. I, I I look back at all the things you know with like you know these pictures of these young captains in Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm like there was no way in hell they were ever going to listen to us that they were going to view us as equals, you know. We were too young, you know, and too too up armored, you know, as as an individual. To, 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 to ever be fully engaged with them. Cause I think they also saw us as saying, look, you know, this is, this is great that you're here, but you're going to be gone in a year or less, you know, whereas with humanitarian work is there's, there's a much longer tail on these things. You're there for much longer periods of time, you know, and it's, it's more, it's more interesting to me, but because it's, you're, you're really not holding back on stuff. You're, you're really just putting your chips in the table in the middle of the table every time. And, um, which is scary in a way too. So looking back, um, the two near misses of not making West Point and then looking at West Point and uh, trying to identify what rules you should follow and what rules you shouldn't. How has that played forward to now? How good are you at identifying which rules are a little bit more flexible than others? Um, so it's funny. I, I did a workshop about a week ago with the, um, the 14 some odd countries that are in my region. And, you know, we have people from North Africa, as far east as Iran. We had uh, a team from Ukraine that was there and people will, will really kind of dig into the rules, but I'm always like, it was like, take the step back, take the step back on all this stuff. You know, what's the intent. And I'm thankful that I learned that word, you know, in, in the service is, is what's the intent as opposed to just like, what's written, what, what are the rules is written? What's the intent? You know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to do things that are fair. You're trying to do things that are, 
that are just. You're trying to do things that are smart. So whenever the rule as it's written, if you know, which I think in 80 to 90% of the situations, the rules reinforce those ideas, right? And then you're gonna pull into a situation you go through and say, actually, in this particular case, this rule doesn't let me do the smart thing. And the thing I always go back to is like, what's the intent? Nobody wants you to do this stupid thing. Do the smart thing. And when you break the rule, own it. And if you're really smart, write it down in the moment and saying, I am breaking this rule. And here's why, you know, and, and then afterwards, if somebody calls you out on it, you're able to go through and say, nope, that wasn't an accident. I knew exactly what I was doing. And here's why. And I'll tell you what, it, I really haven't been left twisting in the breeze yet, you know, and, and, and I've been able to kind of, you know, navigate these things because I've understood that being in an organization too, that when you go to your boss or when you go to your boss's boss and say, here's where we are and here's what's going on is they'll usually back you, you know, and, and that's what I learned from that about, you know, what are the rules that matter? What's the intent? What really matters? I think it goes back also to what you were saying about um, armor and separating yourself from the people that you're trying to help. Rules, uh, regulations, yeah. sometimes that are written in far off locations by people not there face to face with the problem, um, become that barrier to action uh, and engagement. Yeah. So, so I think the rules and policies do become barriers. And, you know, the person who, to your point, is, is, is you know, you know, thousands of miles away when they're writing these things, they, they're in their heart of hearts. They think they're doing the right thing. But fundamentally, if you're in that moment and if you're in that place, it, you are the owner of the problem. And 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 so that way you, you're, you're on the hook, because I mean, how many times have you and I've seen things where people will go through and say, well, you know, I I. I if you go through and you're doing something that you don't think you can win at, or you're playing a game you don't think you can win at, and you go through and say, well, I'm kind of stuck, so what I'm just gonna do is follow the rules. So that way, when it does go sideways, I'll just blame the rules as opposed to blaming my inability to fix, fix the problem. I, I don't know if you've ever run into that or, or seen that, but I, I th that stuff is infuriating to me. And so, yeah, you just, just own the problem, and when you break the rule, own it, say it. Yeah, th this didn't make sense, and this is why we did it differently. And, and, and you can move ahead on these things. That's awesome. Um, that's a great takeaway. As we wrap it up, what would you like to say to the class? Um, a lot of you guys are super smart and you still are. Um, I, I've been listening to the podcast and it's, it's been interesting. But what I, I've, what I found interesting is um, you know, all of us have been taken down a peg or two, Joe. You know, we've, we've, we've all gone through things that have been tough, you know, personally and professionally. And, and some stuff that's been really really tragic, you know? Um, and I think part of it is, is, is being kind to ourselves and being kind to each other, you know, as we, as we try to struggle through these things, but also having the common decency to, to still hold each other accountable, you know? Um, you know, yesterday was Veterans Day and our classmate, Brian Collins, would have been 45. Um, this January, was it December? It's going to be 10 years since he killed himself, you know? And, you know, you know, the whole thing of, you know, whether it's 22 push-ups or, or, or all these other kinds of things, part of it is when we know that folks are struggling or, and are, are not doing well is, is, is over-engaging, you know, with, the, with those friends when they're, when they're going through those moments, you know. And, and I think part of it is, you know, in this podcast and, you know, whether it's on Facebook or whether it's face-to-face, -face, which is the be best way to do it, you know, is, is showing a genuine interest and showing a genuine care that we have for each other. Because we've changed a lot, but I think it's also one of those things where fundamentally we want to see each other happy. We want to see each other succeeding. And and 
you know, God forbid, if, if we go back to, you know, let's go back to the original intent, which was a lifetime of service, right, Joe? You know, that, that was one of the things we said at the very beginning when you enter West Point is how are you going to serve, you know, and, and, and if all you can do is serve your family, that's okay. And that's good. And that's noble. But if you can do a little bit more and you can serve each other, you can serve your community, you know, and you can serve others, you know, that's, we should strive for that. And um, it's not going to be easy, but we should still strive for it. I think that's very well said. Um, thank you for sharing your story today, Tom. Yeah. I, uh, like I said, we got a lot of folks with a lot of cool different backgrounds and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that you gave me a chance to tell my, my story. I, I know it's a weird one. Um, I, I joke around. I say, I think I'm the long haired hippie of the class. I, I, I don't think my hair is that long, but I, I think I am. Um, but, uh, I, I didn't do it deliberately, but I, <laughs> I kind of ended up this in this place, but I'm really happy I ended up in this place. And, um, and I, I'm just, really thankful for the chance to tell, tell my story. Cause I, I know, I know it may see, seem strange to some folks. It's the other side of, um, helping the world. Uh, and there's only so much you can do with that hammer. Yeah. And I, sometimes we use the clock yeah. uh, and, and not the, the striking face to build. Sometimes we just rip stuff apart. Um, yeah. because it's the tools we're given. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't forget that Joe, I don't forget what it was like to, to, to be young and, and only having those tools. You know, but to your point is, you know, that that is necessary. You know, there, you know, there have been good wars. That there have been necessary wars, and they had to be fought. You know, and I think I think we see some going on now. Um, but but there's 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 a reason that there's the old saying about beating a sword into a plowshare, right? Is is the, the the whole idea that at one point the fighting is done, and then the real work starts. And uh, I, I hope I hope for the folks who are who are who are going on to other things, they maybe consider this kind of stuff, you know, whether it's in your communities or whether it's abroad, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of need. And, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there. And yeah, I, I'd, I'd be lying if it's, a, if I said that it hasn't been interesting, it hasn't been fulfilling and I haven't loved it. It's, 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 I needed this job more than it needed me. You're definitely giving back. Well, look, we all are right. I'm, I'm, Hey man, I'm still getting paid for by taxpayer dollars. You know, my job hasn't changed a lick. Same people are paying me, Joe. I'm just doing different stuff now. <laughs> All right. I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you very much, Tom. All right, Joe. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.